Hey, Mosaic. Good to see your faces. If you don't know who I am, my name's Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really good to see you guys. Uh, how many people watched the whole game last night? Whole game? Yeah? All right. <laughs> Did most of us go to bed at halftime? Like, ah, this one's over. Yeah? Yeah, me too. We'll go Big Red. Well, hey, we, um, last week I was gone, and Bill kicked us off into a brand new series called Tribe. And what it means to be a part of Jesus' tribe, specifically. And what a healthy tribe looks like. And uh, I don't know about you, I, I wish we had time to like sit down or do like open mic and just hear all of the awkward religious conversations that you've had with people. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a random conversation with a stranger that ended up turning to God, but, but as a pastor, as you, maybe you can imagine, like, I have a lot of those. Because I meet strangers, and inevitably they want to know, like, so what do you do? Right? And so I want to share one of those with you to give you a little bit of a picture into <laughs> my world. So several months ago, I was on a flight and uh, hopped on this flight coming back to the Midwest. And, and I was flying Southwest, which I, I always fly uh, at every possible chance. Um, this morning, brought to you by Southwest Airlines. And I'm sitting there and I'm feeling very good about my life right now because there's two open seats in the entire plane and one of them is right next to me and one's like right in front of it. And so I got some space for this flight, so I think. And so right before the door closes, these two people come flying out of the airplane and they've been having a good time um, in the airport bar. And gnarly looking couple, definitely buzzing pretty good when they got on the plane. And he is covered in tattoos, right? And so, I mean, every square inch other than his face, tattoos, you know? And so he sits next to me and I'm like, all right, this is gonna be good. So we, we got to talking and I started asking him about his ink, you know, like where'd you get it done? Uh, what does it mean? You know, like how much time did you spend in that chair? How much money have you invested into your body? Right, so we get to talking, and, and so he's going off, and he's telling me all about all these tattoos and stuff, and, and then he tells me, like, actually, we just came back, we're coming back from Vegas, me and my girlfriend, and we just got a bunch of ink done while we are in Vegas on our chests, and he proceeds to describe to me, like, t- talk to me, describe in detail what it felt like to get tattooed, like, around his nipples, and... <laughs> And so and he goes, I was like, man, that had to hurt. And he goes, you know what? Yeah, but it was, it was cool. And, and he actually he goes, you know what? It was, it was more than cool. It was erotic, man. It was erotic, just me and my girlfriend getting tattooed on our nipples. And I was like, and I'm thinking, like, this is so awkward because we are in a full airplane. Like, people are, and it is quiet. And so everybody around us is listening to this conversation. I can't shut it down, right? And so I'm just like, huh. Really? Mm, I, I bet that would hurt. Didn't think about it that way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and I'm, just, I'm just listening to this. And, and then it dawns on me that we're going to be talking probably for a while, and it's going to come up. He's going to ask a question. And no sooner did that thought enter my mind did he turn to me, and he goes, so what do you do? And I, I looked out the window. I turned away from him for a moment, and I thought, I've got to lie. I've, I have to lie. <laughs> God will forgive me. You know, and so I'm thinking, what can I say? Like, I, I do a lot of speaking, you know, some teaching, dabble in writing, do some counseling. I started a nonprofit. I lead that nonprofit. You know, like, what can I say to this guy other than what I actually do? But I was like, no, I got to tell him the truth. So I, I turned to him and I said, I, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, excuse me, what? <laughs> so yeah. Um, and, and the moment that I said that, his girlfriend, who's sitting directly in front of him, 
turns and looks at him with her eyes are just like this big and then slowly turns around and just sits down. Doesn't say a word. So this is how our conversation begins. And now I know everybody's listening. You know what I mean? Like, where is this going to go? So we started talking and we get to actually talking about Jesus. And, and the guy actually has, he's not a church guy. He doesn't consider himself to be a Christian, but, but he's got some ink on him apparently somewhere that I couldn't see, um, some Jesus ink. And we got to talking, and actually, come to find out, you know, this guy, like, he's not a theologian, uh, not even considers himself to be a Christian, but he's very, he's very positive about Jesus. He had a lot of, like, cool things to say about Jesus, and we had, like, this really positive conversation about Jesus, you know? And so, so we're talking about that, but then, then, of course, the conversation eventually turned to church. And in that moment, his tone completely changed, and his posture completely changed. And I came to find something that I keep finding, and, and I think maybe you can relate with this. And, and that is that, that the more people that I talk to, generally speaking, a lot of people that I talk to are very, very positive on Jesus. But when it comes to the church, uh, not so positive. Um, like, Jesus is cool, right? I, I, can, I can dig Jesus, but man, when it comes to church, uh, I, I'm not tracking. I can't go there. Right? But, but Jesus, even, in, even as we look in pop culture, is very interesting. Even in pop culture... Right? Jesus, Jesus is kind of everywhere. And, and the way that he's often portrayed, not always, but oftentimes, is actually very, very positive. Right? And so if you'll just look at like, music, for example, right? Jesus is everywhere in music. Like decade after decade after decade, right? Jesus is getting a lot of airplay. Right? And so, for example, like Johnny Cash, Marilyn Manson, they both uh, recorded a cover of Depeche Mode's Personal Jesus. Right? That, those are a little bit different, Johnny Cash, Marilyn Manson. Uh, Morrissey, you know, saying, I've forgiven Jesus. Bruce Springsteen. Jesus was an only son. Uh, the violent femmes sing, Jesus walking on the water. Kanye West, of course, rapped Jesus Walks, right? And for those of you who watched the Grammys that year, he performed that live. It won the Grammy for the best rap song that year. And because Kanye never does anything for hyperattention, um, he was on the cover of Rolling Stone with a crown of thorns and blood on his face. And I think it said, like, the passion of Kanye or something like that, you know? And then, of course, you got Carrie Underwood, right? Jesus Take the Wheel, topped country music charts. Um, you got Green Day, of course, wrote Jesus of Suburbia. And on that note, Mike Dirt of Green, of Green Day was once asked how he felt about Jesus. And he answered this way. He said, you know, I'm down with Jesus. He's, or he said, I'm down with JC. He's cool. <laughs> right? Pretty positive. Right? Even rock stars, a lot of them, positive on Jesus. Right? We see this in film. Honestly, how many movies have been made about Jesus? And how many more movies will be made about Jesus? I'm going to guess a couple more. Right? Keeps on coming. Passion of the Christ, ridiculously successful, made a stupid amount of money, right? And, and top box office charts. And then on the other side of that, fashion world grabs on, and Jesus chic became the new, like, big thing, right? And Jesus is, is showing up all over, um, all over fa the fashion world, right? And even major publications like the New York Times have said, you know, that Jesus has become actually a staple in fashion, right? It's all kind of cyclical, and eventually he always finds his way back uh, onto our clothing. In fact, I remember in high school walking through Gateway Mall and walking in a Hot Topic and seeing the shirt on the wall, and I knew I had to have it the moment that I saw it. And here's Jesus, right? Do you see, remember this? The caricature says, Jesus is my homeboy. And I got that shirt, and it was white, and I wore it until it was yellow. And then I cut the sleeves off, and I worked out in that shirt. Like, I wore that shirt like crazy. And the company that created the shirt, this is, this is what they said, uh, Teenage Millionaire is the name of that company. They said, you know, we looked at the popular icons of the 20th century, and Jesus definitely topped the list. So we made the shirt, right? Because popular sells. 
Jesus is popular. Go figure. Right? And then I remember wearing that shirt, and I remember seeing, like, Ashton Kutcher wearing the shirt and the hat. Right? And then I remember Pamela Anderson wearing the shirt. I remember Madonna wearing the shirt, right? Like, she is, like, she leads the way in fashion and influence, wearing a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Right? In fact, Madonna was once asked asked how she felt about Jesus. And this is what she said. She said, I don't think there's anything wrong with the teachings of Jesus, but I'm suspicious of organized religion. Right? Doesn't that encapsulate, just in this beautiful snapshot, how a lot of us feel when it comes to faith? When it comes to Jesus and church, it's like, you know what? Jesus is cool. Church, not cool. Right? Jesus, somewhat fashionable. Church, definitely not fashionable. Right? Jesus, I can trust, but if I know one thing, like the church, uh, I can't trust the church, or I don't trust the church. And I would, I would suggest to you that ours is a generation that generally we like Jesus and we don't like the church. And honestly, if we get really honest and show all of our cards, it's pretty understandable. Right? When you hop on social media and you pay attention to what some people are really out there, like, with their faith, very outspoken. The way that they talk to people sometimes is embarrassing, is it not? Like, I feel like I could play the truth police on social media and just argue with mean Christians, like, all week. Like, I love social media. We started this church with social media, largely. But, man, sometimes I just want to put a gun in my mouth when I get on social media and I listen to people who call themselves Christians and the way that they treat people uh, who are not. Right, for some of us, I mean, I don't know about you, but... But, so I used to work at Jimmy John's, for example. And when we were starting this church, that's where I worked. I worked at Jimmy John's, delivering sandwiches for Jesus, freaky fast. And I love my coworkers. I love that job. There's a part of me that misses that job. There's some weeks that I really miss that job. Um, but I'm working there, and, and I just was trying hard just to be a good friend. You know, and, and inevitably, conversations about faith or about Jesus would come up, and, and uh, just real with people, try to love people, tell them about Jesus and who Jesus is. But one day in particular, I remember this, after months, we're working, and right on the corner of 14th and O, that was our store, right on the corner comes the guy with the big cross. And he just starts laying into everybody who's walking by, calling them all kinds of names, including me, as I'm going in and out of the store with sandwiches, and all the other delivery drivers. And one of the other drivers just turned to me, and he said, Aaron, Christian, that's your homeboy, right? You know, that's your bro. And I just remember turning to my coworkers, I'm like, oh, but please don't associate me with that. That is not my bro, you know, and that is not Jesus's either. Like, please don't associate that with Jesus. It doesn't look anything like Jesus. Sometimes the way Christians act is so embarrassing. And for some of us, that's part of the reason that we just struggle when it comes to church. For others of us, it's a lot more personal than that. And for a number of us, I would guess in this room, we bear the scars of Jesus communities, of church, of pastors who behaved in ways that look nothing like Jesus. Maybe it was a campus ministry leader, a Christian that you knew, a family member, and they hurt you and cut you so deep. And, and as a result, you have a very hard time trusting guys like me on a stage like this, in a space like this. Uh, and just so you know, like, I, I get it, I get it. Like, for those of you who have been a part of Mosaic, you already know but some of you don't know, like, this, that's a big part of my story. My deepest wounds have come at the hands of pastors. One in particular, and a group of Christians, who displaced our family, who did things, said things that were not true, spread a bunch of lies, split the only church that I ever knew when I was a kid right down the middle. And my family had to move at a very hard time in life. And, and it started for me, what was 
arguably maybe the darkest season of my life. Two years of depression. Um, I thought about suicide regularly. And as far as this whole church thing is concerned, I was out. It's like, if this is what Christianity is about, if this is what being a Christian is all about, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this. Right? And if I'm really honest, even to this day, when I'm in a room full of pastors, which happens fairly regularly, I am extremely uncomfortable. And if I'm really honest, I don't trust them. Which is really weird, because now I'm a pastor. Right? Which is very conflicting internally when I look in the mirror. (laughs) I don't trust pastors. Now I am one. So God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> right? But I get it. And for some of you, this is the reason, like, you, when it comes to faith, like, it is, it is a solo pursuit. Right? Every scar is just a reminder that if you let people close, and especially if you let Christians close, you're going to get hurt. Right? And every wound, a reminder, you know what? The church, that whole thing is broken, and it doesn't work. I'm out. And I'd venture to guess for a number of us, like that has been a big part of our story. And if that's not a part of your story, I'd venture to guess that that's a big part of, of stories of people you know. Right? And this is why every year, every maybe even six months, we carve out space to step back and talk about why what we do here matters. Because a lot of us have scars. Some of us have wounds that are still open and we're still bleeding and you're not sure how you feel about me and you're not sure how you feel about church. For some of you, you're listening to this like online on the podcast, right? Because you cannot bring yourself, despite your faith, into a space like this because you've been hurt so bad, right? So we carve out space regularly to just step back and remember and remind ourselves why this? Why a tribe? Why not do this? Why not do this alone? And you just need to know something this morning, and that is if, if you bear the scars and wounds of religious people who acted in ways that looked nothing like Jesus, but maybe they even did it in Jesus' name, you need to know that that was never what God intended. And you also need to know that neither is your going at it alone. All right, there's a passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2.10, and this is how it reads, and this is kind of our, our orienting passage for this, for this um, series. And he says this, he says, you know, once, once you were not a people, but now, now you are God's people, right? You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy, right? He says at one point you were a person and this thing was a solo pursuit. You were on your own, but something changed. Something changes the moment that you commit your life to Christ and begin to follow him. And that is you're no longer a person, but now you're invited to actually become a part of a people, Right, of God's people, right? And for those of us who don't bear scars and wounds, I mean, this, we need to know, part of the reason we talk about this as well is this is so countercultural, right? Because culturally, we love to celebrate celebrities that stand on the podium alone. Of course, we celebrate them, and then we love to assassinate them as well, right? But even our heroes, right? Even our heroes, like, we love to celebrate individuals, right? Even the stories we tell, Right? It's like the narratives of, of like the cowboy, right? Out west, on his horse alone, riding off into the sunset. It's the idea of like the lone ranger mentality, right? It's a narrative of like the self-made man, the self-made woman, right? Who struck out on their own, created their own course, you know, incredible success, admired by all, but in need of none. Right? It's so countercultural. But I would suggest to you that that there are a number of things, even in our own language and in nature and in science, that suggest this is not the way it was ever intended to be. 
Right, so just for example, like in, in chemistry, you have something uh, called free radicals, which sounds really, really cool, right? And especially if you're a 90s kid like me, like who loves the new radicals, anything radical just sounds great, right? You've got these free radicals, but a free radical, here's what a free radical is. It is a volatile, short-lived cell that creates tumor, disease, and cancer inside of your body, right? They're molecules that have no tribe, or they have no electron to attach themselves to, and so they react to all, all other mo molecules, and in the process, they destroy everything. Right? Free radicals, they actually, what's happening is they, damages, they damage the other molecules, often resulting in um, all kinds of age-related illnesses, heart attacks, strokes, and cancers, and all comes back to these free radicals who are attached to no tribe inside of your body. Because your body is created to be an integral whole. But those those free radicals that go at it alone, well, they mess all of that up, right? Or we see this even in, like, nature. Like, even as we look at animals, right? A lot of animals, they'll travel in packs, right? They'll travel in tribes, right? One of those being wolves, right? So last, last, uh, last weekend, we were out camping uh, with my buddy Mike and a bunch of, bunch of people, and we were up in the mountains of Colorado, and we were really deep up in there. And I don't know if you've ever, like, really gone, like, out in the wilderness, like, a long ways away, but it can be a little disconcerting when you think about if I get hurt, help is a long ways away, you know? And when you're laying in your tent and you hear wildlife, like, I don't know about you, but my imagination starts to run wild, right? So it's like, what if I see a bear? What if I see a wolf? Like, I'm, I'm dead meat up here. I'm lunch. There's nowhere to go. But here's the thing. If you ever run into a wolf out in the wilderness, you run. <laughs> We're have survival tips up here. You can't. You can run, chase, anybody else? Now, here's what I was going to say. So, I would agree with you. You run if it squares off with you. Because if that wolf squares off with you, that means it's not alone. And in that moment, it's very likely that the rest of the tribe, the rest of the pack is circling. Right? But when you see a wolf and it's alone, you actually don't have to be afraid. And nine out of ten times, it's going to turn and run. Because a lone wolf is one that has been ostracized from the pack. It's alone. And a lone wolf, a lone wolf loses its ability to hunt. See, as a tribe, as a pack, uh, they hunt. And one of the ways that they hunt is they try to isolate smaller, weaker, weaker animals from their pack, from their tribe, in order to eat. But the moment that a wolf is separated from the pack and it's a lone wolf, it doesn't hunt anymore. It loses that ability. They scavenge. That's what lone wolves do. Right? The, the, the animal that's at the top of the food chain out in the wilderness, the moment that it separates from the pack, it's alone. It's weak, and it no longer hunts. Right? We, we see this even in the stories the stories that we tell. So any, like, Sons of Anarchy fans in here? Sons of Anarchy? We got a few? Okay, yeah, all right. We got a few. So Sons of Anarchy, really cool show. You've got these tribes of, like, biker gangs. And, and they stick together, and they survive together, and it's kind of a brutal world all over the U.S. But then you have these people in the show called nomads. Right? And nomads don't want to be attached to a tribe. Right? They're, they're kind of misfits. They go off on their own. But, the, of course, the interesting thing in the show is that when they move, nomads actually have to stick together because it's the only way that they can survive. So they don't want to be a part of a tribe, but the only way they can survive is to actually kind of join a tribe that's an untribe. They're still part of a tribe. Right? But one of the things they say in the show about nomads is that nomads don't live long. They have a very difficult time surviving because a nomad doesn't know how to watch somebody else's back. And a nomad doesn't have anybody to watch theirs. Right? Any Walking Dead fans in the house? Walking Dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I love Walking Dead. If you've been a part of Mosaic, you know this. We did a whole teaching series on Walking Dead. I love the Walking Dead. I'm a zombie apocalypse kind of nut. And I'm sick, and I'm sorry. I'm your pastor. It's just me. But 
if you watch The Walking Dead, like, it, it's, you know, there's zombies, but this, this story is not about zombies, right? In The Walking Dead, it is all about tribes, right? It is all about communities of people trying to figure out a way to survive together, right? And the worst moments in the show, right, the ones where there's the least amount of hope and, and, and the character, the um, <laughs> I want to say caricatures, the characters are without hope and they're defeated and they're deflated. It's the most depressing moments of the entire story. It's always when they get isolated. It's always when they're alone. Right, you have to know that, that we see this reflected, you know, in all these different ways and in chemistry and in nature and even in some of the stories that we tell. And, and I would suggest to you that there's a reason for that. And part of that reason is that when you venture off alone and you go off alone, like inevitably you're going to find yourself hurt. You're going to find yourself weak. Right? You're going to find yourself struggling to make it. And even if you manage to survive, you're not going to thrive. Because it's not the way it's meant to, meant to be. And even though, like, a lone wolf sounds really, really cool, like, Chuck Norris has a cigar brand called Lone Wolf. Chuck Norris. Who doesn't want to be Chuck Norris, right? I want to be Chuck Norris, right? Chuck Norris, it sounds super cool to be a lone wolf, but you know what? From a distance, it looks cool, but to live the story of the lone wolf, it sucks up close. And I would take it even a step further, and that is that I would say that the way that God has designed you and wired you and designed this thing, following Jesus, wired you for faith, is in this way that, in, in this, this way that we need other people. It is part of the design. It's where the action is. In fact, here's, here's, a, here's a passage that, that is one of my favorites. And I would say for a lot of us, like, this should and does create tension for us, especially those of us who like Jesus and not his church. This is Ephesians 5.25. This is how it reads. It says, husbands, love your wives. How do you love your wives? How should we? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Love your wives just as Christ loved the Christian, the person, the individual. Now, just as Christ loved the church, the tribe, the community, the church, and gave himself up for her. See, there's, there's a rub here for a lot of us. There's a tension that we actually have to wrestle with if we're going to take Jesus on his own terms. And that's that Jesus loves his church. In fact, the language is, it's his bride. Right? And so, I have a bride. My wife, Megan. And I love my bride. And if you mess with her, I will take you out. Right? I'm going to, if you diss on my wife and try to be my friend, I'm going to tell you right now, we are not going to be friends. And if you do it to my face, I might punch you in the throat. Right? I'm going to act in ways that are not very pastoral. I will repent and apologize genuinely. But I love her. Right? And this is the same language that we're given when it comes to the church and Jesus. Is that this is his bride, whom he loves. In fact, he loves her so much that he laid down his life for her. And I want you to just think about this just for a moment. Because I know you have a lot of good reasons why we shouldn't love the church. And why the church is wrong, and the tribe is wrong, and you're right. And I get it. But I just want to think about this for a minute. All right, if Jesus is more than a man, all right, so let's just say, just assume for a minute that he is who the scriptures testify him to be. So he is God in the flesh, divinity with skin on, sent on a rescue mission to give us a chance to live the life we were created to live. Right, to, to join him, to be freed, to be a new creation, and then join him in his ongoing kingdom work, transforming this world. If that is true, and that's who Jesus was, more than a man, 
then he marched to the cross knowing all of the sin that his bride would commit that was on the horizon. So he knew, even about the worst of it, he knew about the Crusades. Right, a time in which people who claimed the name of, of Jesus would murder people in his name. Right, the same one who said, you know, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And the same one who said, you know what, when somebody hits you in the face, you need to turn the other cheek. And they used that Jesus as justification to go murder a bunch of people. He knew that was coming. Right, it means that he knew that every time a Catholic priest would use his position to take advantage of children, that that was coming. And he knew that about the, those above him that would move him around and put him in a different parish where maybe he'll do the exact same thing and cover. It means he knew about every Protestant pastor who would get up on a stage like this and say things and then go live a different way, right? Whose sin came out publicly, who split churches and hurt people like me and like a number of you, that he knew that was coming. It also means that he knew about every sin that would be true of you too. Every thought that you would think, thing that you would feel, thing you would fantasize about, that you're not proud of, all of the things that you know you should do, but maybe up until now you haven't done. He knew about that, and it also means that he knew that about the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. And he still thought, listen to me, he still thought that you and us were worth dying for. All right, just level with that for a minute and sit on that for a moment. All right, there's a tension there. All right, a tension that we should feel the moment that we think, you know what, I'm just going to take Jesus and, and, you know what, the bride, go away. I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. Because the scriptures say that Jesus loves his church. All right, we have to wrestle with this, this idea that when it comes to faith, like, it's a team sport. That it is tribal in essence. So, for example, communion, you can't take communion by yourself. Right? It's tribal. It's communal. We have to do it alongside one another. Right? You can't baptize yourself. It's tribal. It's communal. We have to do it with one another. You can't, you can't disciple yourself. It's tribal. It's communal. We have to do it with one another. Right? And so there's, there's a rub here. And depending on what your story is, depending on where this meets you, I think there's some challenges for us. And so, like, as I wrap up, I just want to throw out a few challenges. All right, for some of us, first of all, to begin, means that we're going to have to resist the urge to become cynical, which can be very hard to do when it comes to the church. Amen? Right? Yeah. It can be so hard because there's so many things, honestly, that are worthy of thoughtful critique at times, right? In fact, Bono has this great quote. I, I, I'm a big U2 fan, best concert I've ever been to. It changed my life. Uh, Bono said this, and I love him because he says things like this. Christians are hard to tolerate. I don't know how Jesus does it. Right? There are a lot of weeks when I can relate with that. You know what I mean? Like, there are weeks when it's like, you know what? I'm just going to go build sheds. You know, somebody else can be a pastor because, because some of the people that I'm responsible for are driving me freaking crazy. You know what I mean? Like, part of what makes this hard is, is there are things within the tribe that are very worthy of criticism, right? But it's too easy to be a cynic, right? Being a cynic asks nothing of us. It requires that we create nothing. We can just sit on the couch as the armchair quarterback and criticize the guys on screen, which I know Husker fans would never do. <laughs> Definitely not last week when we almost lost McNeese State, right? But it's so easy. So easy. What's hard is actually getting in the game and stretching out for that pass as high and across the middle 
right, are standing in the pocket as the blitz is coming, knowing that you're going to get lit up. Right, but you do it because you believe the blood and the sweat and the tears are worth it, right? And here's the thing. You might not think that when it comes to church that the blood and the sweat and tears are worth it. I get that. And when it comes to the tribe, you might not think that the blood and the sweat and the tears are worth it. But the rub for us is, is that Jesus did all of the blood, all of the sweat, all of the tears. And so when we follow Jesus, we've got to resist this magnetic pull to become cynics, to become critical and never move from being critics to actually being creators. Because the call of Jesus is not just to sit there and tear everything apart. The call of Jesus is to be a part of building something different, right? If the church pisses you off, then be a part of creating one that's beautiful and right. It will be humbling. I'm learning. It won't be perfect. But that's the only way forward. Because apparently we can't just take Jesus and slap his bride in the face. So resist the need to be cynical. All right, secondly, and this can be a hard pill to swallow depending on your story, is that if you follow Jesus long enough, eventually it's going to mean following him into his tribe and becoming a part of a local tribe of faith. Right? And if you've been hurt by guys like me and you find yourself really struggling to trust guys like me, I get it. Right? It can be tempted to think, tempting to think, well, he's a pastor. Of course he's going to say that. Right? But, but I'm just doing my best to be faithful to the text here and be the messenger. If you say yes to Jesus step by step by step, eventually it's going to lead you into his people because God has created you not to be a person, not just to be a person, but to become a part of his tribe, to be a part of his people. And by the way, the truth is, that may not be mosaic, and that's okay. That's okay. But eventually, the challenge here is you're going to have to find a tribe of faith and ask, actually risk making yourself known, putting yourself out there, entering into relationship, giving, serving, loving, repeat, right? As Bill said last week, never stop giving. Never stop giving. Thirdly, as you do, just to put all of our, our, our cards out there and be honest, you need to expect to be disappointed. Eventually, given enough time, you're going to be hurt. Eventually, given enough time, you're going to be let down. And I wish I could say that that's not true of Mosaic and that never happens here. Uh, but we're a room full of sinners right now. You know, um, we're broken too. We're every bit in need of God's grace as every other tribe of faith. And so there are times when we stumble forward. You know, um, Gandhi had a famous quote and he said this, and I'm sure a number of you know it. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, Gandhi was a person who had pictures of Jesus, paintings hung up, and he constantly studied the life of Jesus. He was very intrigued by the life of Jesus. And, and there was a, one particular pastor who had a huge impact on Gandhi, and he actually traveled to a conference where he was going to be speaking. And when he got to the front of the, this place where they were meeting, somebody recognized Gandhi, and they wouldn't let him in because of who he was. And I think from there, he never really looked back. And this is where quotes like this come from, where it's like, yeah, you know what, Jesus, I get it, I like him. I think I can maybe even, like, believe in him and follow him. Everything he stood for, I'm about, but man, your Christians are so unlike him. And to be completely honest, you just got to know, like, some days that's me. And there's going to be days when the, that's the person sitting next to you. 
Right, and every fall about this time, this is what happens. The room gets packed, and we have all types of guests and people who are new at Mosaic, and they get super hyped on this community. Finally, you know, a church, this, that, or the other. A church like the one I've been looking for. And some of you, you're there, and you're here, and you're hyped, and you just got to know, you got to know, a time is coming when we're going to disappoint you. Right, and I challenge you to decide now. Not if that day comes, but when that day comes to decide now what you're going to do. Right? Are, are you going to, to bail and give up and go down to another tribe of faith and then get hurt there and bail and be disappointed somewhere else and do that thing? Are you going to isolate yourself and just go at it alone? Or maybe, just maybe, would you be willing to stick it out and start extending grace to those surrounding you? In the same way that God extends grace to you every single day. Because I'm telling you, that's when the church becomes irresistible. That's when the tribe of Jesus is something that everybody wants in on. Because this isn't a place where we shoot our wounded. Right? This isn't a place where we build up celebrities and then we assassinate them. But this isn't a place where we, we bail on one another the moment that we're hurt or wrong. This is a place where we extend grace to one another over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because that's what God does for us. And we won't do it perfectly, but I'm telling you, when you do that, a tribe like that cannot be stopped. And no matter how deep the wounds are, no matter how skeptical the person, a tribe like that is one that everybody wants in on. And so I'm begging you and challenging you to decide now. When that day comes and you find yourself disappointed, to decide now what you're going to do in that moment. And again, maybe Mosaic is not that tribe for you, and that's okay. But you've got to find one. And choose to stay. And then lastly, for those of you who have been hurt, for those of you who wound, whose wounds are maybe still open, uh, your challenge is maybe the most challenging. And that is, your challenge is going to be to forgive us. To forgive us. And that, that may be a lot to ask. And Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, you know, when we say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. We end up losing not only the church, but Jesus too. The challenge is to forgive the church. And this challenge is especially great because the church seldom asks for forgiveness. And I've experienced that. And far too often it's true. Right? And so for those of you in this room or listening online, you just got to know that that when you read in the headlines of another church leader who betrayed the trust of everybody and ran off with the secretary or the money or both, you know, or, or when that person in your own story betrayed your trust, when that Christian unfairly judged you or hurt you or wounded you, you have to know that that, that, that was never what Jesus' tribe was meant to be, and that is not reflective of the kind of God that God is. You just got to know that. And this morning, I just want to say on behalf of Jesus' tribe and this tribe specifically, I'm sorry. All right, I'm sorry. Like, we're sorry for what you've walked through. And you've got to know that as imperfect, imperfectly as we do it, that God is still moving through his tribe. And even when we drop the ball, that God never does, and that God isn't giving up on his tribe, the church. And in my hope and my prayer is that you will come to see Jesus for who he really is. And that you will come to see his tribe for what it could be. Because Jesus thought his bride worth dying for. He died for her. He commissioned her with his Holy Spirit. 
He sent her. He still moves through her, and one day he's going to come back for her. Right? He still changes the world through his tribe. One life at a time, one act of compassion at a time. And you are invited to not just remain a person, but to become a part of a people, to become a part of a tribe. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, I just confess to you um, the moments that I still have when I refuse to love your bride, the times in which I'm tempted to just hold her at arm's length and not trust those that you have placed around me to do my own thing and fly solo and be a lone wolf. But Lord God, I thank you that you did not give up on me even when I gave up on you, even when I gave up on your tribe. And Lord God, for us as a community, as we move forward together, I just ask that you would give us the courage to confront our demons, to address our wounds and our scars, and ask maybe, just maybe, how those are holding us back from actually following you into your tribe. Lord God, we ask for your extended grace amongst us as we do this so imperfectly, a room, a community, a tribe full of sinning saints who still need grace every single day, who get it wrong every single day in one way or another. And Lord God, I ask that you would just impress upon our hearts the incredible grace that you offer us every day, that you would allow us for our jaw to just draw open how amazing you are how undeserved that love and that grace really is so that in those moments when we are wronged, when we are hurt, when we are disappointed, instead of looking at our offender, we can look to you and remember how much we have been forgiven so that we can extend that forgiveness out to one another. Lord God, I ask that you would make us into a tribe that is so irresistible, not because of the flash, not because of uh, the music or the art or anything else, other than the love that I want to char just characterize this, this community so badly, that people would look in and say, you know what, I'm not sure about this Jesus business, but I want to be a part of that. I've never experienced anything like that. I've never been loved like that. I've never had anyone extend me grace like that. Lord, may it be so. Make us into that kind of people. So, Lord God, we come before you now as a tribe, and we lift up our voices to you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.